Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Romans. Our text today is Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. Uh, as we said before, we're going through a series of sermons on the benefits of our salvation in Christ, following the outline of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, first, what benefits do we receive in this life? Second, what benefits do we receive at death? And third, what benefits do we receive at the resurrection? Well, over the last three weeks, we've considered the three main benefits we receive in this life. Justification, adoption, and sanctification. And today, we're going to begin to consider the benefits we enjoy in this life that either accompany or flow from those three. The first of which being assurance of God's love. But before we hear the reading and preaching of God's word, let's pray and ask for his blessing upon our study this morning. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, you have spoken to us through your Son. Let your written word now be spoken and heard by each of us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand, that we may not refuse your calling or ignore your voice. May we all be taught by you through your powerful word, Bring our every thought captive to obeying Christ, to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him? Graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all come up and join me. Good to see y'all. Plenty of room. Come on up. Do you guys know what this is? Not only is it a fantastic noisemaker, but it's also a socket wrench. It's uh, made for tightening and loosening bolts. Uh, I use one like this when I'm working on my cars at home. Now, not to brag, but I know a little bit about cars. Like, I can look at a car's headlights at night, and I can tell you exactly which way it's going. <laughs> but do you know who knows even more about cars? The mechanics who use tools like this every single day, who can take a whole car apart and put it back together again, and it works. Now, if I was talking to my mechanic, 
What do you think he would say if I told him that instead of gasoline, I was thinking about just putting water into the tank? Think about it, I'd tell him. Uh, Doctors and moms and dads everywhere say how important it is to stay hydrated. Why should I put smelly old gasoline in my car? Water is much healthier. What do you think he would say, Eleanor? <laughs> Smart. Yeah, I think he would assure me that putting water into the tank is a quick way of needing a new car. Because cars can't run on water. He, he would say, I promise that, like you said, it's a mistake. You need gasoline for your car to run properly. Now, if I have any sense at all, whose word am I going to trust, me or the mechanic? The mechanic, right. I'm going to trust the mechanic's word over my own. When he assures me that cars need gasoline, I'll trust him more than I trust myself because he knows what he's talking about. Well, just like I need to take the mechanic's word over mine, we need to learn to take God at his word. After all, God sent His own Son, Jesus, to die so that we could live. And so, when He tells us that He loves us, should we believe Him? Yes. God tells us that He will save anyone, anyone who believes in Jesus, no matter what wrong we have done. And so, if I am afraid, if I'm afraid that my sins are too big and too many for Him to save me, then who should I believe? Should I believe my fears or should I believe Him? Him. Right, we need to trust God and that means take Him at His word. Believe Him even more than you believe yourself. God knows that our guilt and our shame about what we've done, they make us wonder if He really loves us. And that's why He reassures us again and again That He loves us. He really does love us. And because we can take Him at His word, that's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right. Thanks, guys. You can go back to your seat. If you've not done so already, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. As Sam said, we are in the middle of a series here. Uh, on the benefits of our salvation. And we are following the the general outline that is set before us in uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, Question 32 uh, of that catechism asks, what benefits do believers partake of in this life? And the answer reads, believers do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification. And then it adds, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. And so while we have looked the last few weeks at our justification and our adoption and our uh, sanctification, uh, this morning we are going to begin looking at uh, what we might call the, the secondary benefits of our salvation. Those benefits that come with or, or flow out of our justification, adoption, and sanctification. 
And those benefits are, uh, as they are outlined for us in question 36 of the Catechism, uh, those benefits are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase in grace, and perseverance therein to the end. And so these five benefits, assurance, peace, joy, increase, and perseverance, these five benefits will be our focus for the next few weeks, beginning this morning with assurance, the the assurance of God's love that is ours through our justification, adoption, and sanctification. But before we talk about assurance, it's, it's helpful, I think, first to talk about doubt. Because doubt is something that I think many of us have experienced. Now, most of you are familiar with the name R.C. Sproul. He is, or he was, one of the premier Bible teachers of our generation. And his Ligonier Ministries, his, his teaching ministry down in Florida, has been the primary source for uh, biblical and theological education for, for numerous people. In fact, uh, this church, in many ways, traces its roots to Ligonier Ministry. It was through uh, the teaching of R.C. Sproul that a, a small group Bible study here in Cleveland was introduced to Reformed theology and, and got a vision to start a Reformed church. However, his stature, Sproul's stature as a great teacher, didn't mean that his kids always got it right, right away. In one of his books, he tells the story of a conversation that he had with one of his sons when he was five or six years old. And Sproul, you know, the way that uh, fathers do, he was, he was trying to probe his son's understanding of the gospel. And so he asked him if he was confident that he would go to heaven when he died. And his son was very confident. And he assured his dad that, yes, yes, he knew that he was going to heaven when he died. And so Sproul asked him uh, what he would say to God. Uh, when God asked him why he should let him into his heaven. It's the the classic evangelism explosion question. Uh, Why should God let you into his heaven? And Sproul's son thought about it for a moment, and then he quite confidently said, well, because I'm dead. (laughs) Sproul's son thought God should let him into heaven when he died because he would be dead. And dead people go to heaven. It's what Sproul calls justification by death. And believe it or not, it's a doctrine that I think many people in the United States believe today. There are many today who believe that heaven is just where people go when you die. It's it's the theology that you see in so many of Hollywood's movies. God is kind and loving, therefore he will receive everyone when they die. It's justification by death. Death. There are others, of course, who recognize the problems with this theology, and they they choose instead not to believe in justification by death, but in some form of justification by works. Justification by works says that a person must be a good person in order to go to heaven when they die. Now, of course, most people who believe this also believe that they at least meet the minimum requirement of good. Uh, they, they still believe that they are going to go to heaven when they die, but not just because they're dead, but because they have, they have done enough good works in order to secure that destiny. <coughs> that is, most people believe in justification uh, by merit, by what they have done. 
There are others, of course, who, who recognize that, that there are problems with this as well, that, that being good enough to earn heaven might be a little beyond their reach. And so they instead choose to believe in what Sproul calls justification by religion. They don't think they can be good enough, strictly speaking, to earn heaven, but they, they think that they can perform certain religious duties uh, that will certainly secure their eternal destiny. Sometimes this takes a high church shape. That is, people believe that they will be justified if they attend Mass or go to confession or repeat certain prayers. Others, uh, it, for others, it takes a more common shape. They believe they will be justified if they go to church or read their Bible or have a regular quiet time or at least tithe. But whether it's high church or, or lower church, either way, they believe that they will go to heaven because they have sufficiently perform certain religious duties. Now, people in each of these camps, uh, whether they believe they are justified just simply because they're dead, whether they believe they are, are justified because they have been good enough, or whether they believe they are, are justified because they have been scrupulous in their religion, each, people in each of these camps believe uh, that they will be saved, that they have an assurance of their salvation. Now, unfortunately, what they have is a false assurance. They have a, a false assurance based upon a false conception of the gospel. As we've heard over the course of the last few weeks, our, our salvation, our justification is not by death, it's not by works, it's not by religion, but rather we are justified, we are declared righteous in the sight of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ. Alone. And therefore, what these people need to hear, the, these people who are trusting in, in just their death or in their, uh, their good works or in their religious performance, what they need to hear is not assurance, it's not comfort, but rather challenge. One of the RUF pastors that I worked with when I was the campus minister at the University of North Carolina in Asheville used to say that it is a minister's job to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. In other words, there are times when it's the pastor's job to comfort. It, it, there are times when it is the pastor's job to, to come with a word of encouragement and assurance. But there are also times when it is the pastor's job to afflict, when it is the pastor's job to challenge, when it is the pastor's job actually to undermine assurance, because it is an assurance that is based upon a false gospel. And so what people need to hear when they have believed a false gospel is a challenge to their assurance. They need, as the pastor used to say, they need to be afflicted. They need to have their false assurances Undermine to, to borrow a phrase from Francis Schaeffer, they need to have the roofs of their houses torn off by the truth. Ironically, it is those who have heard the true gospel and those who have believed the true gospel who, almost, who often struggle the most with assurance. It's because in the true gospel they have heard the real bad news of their sin. They have heard the, the bad news that that God is holy, and they are not. They know that it is only those with clean hands and a pure heart who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may enter into his kingdom. And so when they look in the mirror, 
they doubt. When they look in the mirror, they, they wonder. They know that God can by no means clear the guilty, and yet they know that they are guilty. When they consider their own record, they, they tremble with fear, knowing that they are justly condemned. And I say this only to make uh, two preliminary points as we uh, turn our attention to assurance. And the first is this, that, <coughs> that if you have been troubled by doubts, if you have struggled with assurance concerning uh, God's love or your, your relationship with him or your, your eternal salvation, I want you to hear me say that that is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it could be a good thing to have an unassailable assurance of God's love, to, to have a, a, just an absolute assurance that, that God is for you and that, of course, he will receive you into his heaven, is not necessarily a sign of true and strong and lively faith. If you have such an assurance this morning, if you are here this morning, you have no doubts whatsoever about your eternal destiny, if you've never struggled with that question ever in your life, then I want to encourage you, and I want to even exhort you, to examine closely the foundation of that assurance. What is that assurance based on? If you've never struggled with the, with the idea that, uh, that, that God might not receive you into his heaven, if you've never struggled with the idea that, that, that maybe you are a sinner justly condemned, I, I want to ask you, what, what is that assurance built on? Is it built upon the sure hope of what God has done for you in Christ? Or is it built upon the false notion that, that of course, God loves everybody. Of course, the dead go to heaven. Of course, I'm good enough. Of course, I've been faithful enough. Because if your foundation is built on anything other than Christ, it is a false assurance. And such assurances, such false assurances can be deadly. Jesus himself says that on that day, on that day when all are called to account, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, but he will say to them, away from me. I never knew you. There are many who have assurance whose assurance is false. And so if you are here this morning and you have never struggled with the question of assurance, I want to afflict you a little bit. I want to challenge you to, to examine closely the foundations of that assurance. But at the same time, if you are here and you have struggled with assurance, if you are here this morning and you have, you have struggled to really believe that, uh, that, that you can be saved, that the gospel is good enough for you, then I want to comfort you. And I want to point you to the true ground of assurance that is ours, not in ourselves, not in our performance, whether moral or religious, but I want to point you to the ground of assurance that is available to us in Christ. Jesus says that the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit. And so if you are struggling, that may be a good sign. If you are struggling to believe that the kingdom is yours, that, that you have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, even as you are being kept for it, and that, that is a sign, yes, that your faith is not yet what it should be. But it might be a sign that you have understood something of the essence of 
the gospel. Your faith is not yet complete, but you, you are on your way because you know your sin. And you know your only hope lies outside of yourself. And what I want to show you this morning is that the hope that lies outside you is a hope that is certain, is a hope that is living because Christ is living, because Christ himself has been raised from the dead. So let's, let's begin by looking at the objective ground of our assurance in Christ. Just, just think about what that language means. Assurance is a confidence. It is a, a certainty. And when we talk about assurance of God's love, uh, we, may, we may use that phrase in one of two ways. First, we may mean that, that we have a confidence that the gospel is strong enough to save. That the strong, gospel really is God's power to save those who believe. Or uh, we may mean that, that we have a confidence in our own faith, that we truly have laid hold of these promises. So there's, a, there's an objective sense of assurance and there's a subjective sense of assurance. Now, what our catechism is talking about here in this question, I think, is the objective sense of assurance. Do you have an assurance that the gospel is truly God's power to save those who believe? It is is an assurance of the the power of God manifest in the gospel to save sinners. And that's that's where our focus is going to be this morning. But I want you to know we're going to come back to that subjective sense of assurance later this summer when we're looking not at the benefits of salvation, but actually at the application of salvation. How do we receive? these benefits? We're going to be asking that question later this summer, and when we, when we take up that question of, of how we receive these benefits, we will ask the question about uh, how do we know that our faith is real? But this morning, we're not focusing so much on our own subjective faith, but we're focusing on the gospel itself. How do we know the gospel is true? How do we know that the gospel is God's power for salvation? That's where our focus is this morning. And, and I want us to see that our, our, focus, our, our, our assurance is grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. We know that we are no longer objects of God's wrath. We know that we are now children of his love because of Christ. Because God did not spare his own son, but rather put him forward for our salvation. So this assurance that we're, we're talking about, it is, it is an assurance that the gospel is true and it is, it is powerful and it, and it is the source of salvation. It's, and this is a, a type of assurance that, that all of us have struggled with at some point and not just with respect to our salvation. We often want to know why we should believe something is going to Work. I often have that question with respect to, to cars, right? Uh, wh- why am I supposed to believe that this is going to work? We, we have it with respect to our health as well. Many years ago, I, I had fairly significant back pain, and I was struggling even to, to stand for long periods of, of time. And when you have back pain, lots of people want to tell you what worked for them. They, they want to tell you their remedies. They want to tell you how they found relief. And at first, I would, I would listen to all of these suggestions, uh, maybe even somewhat eagerly, hoping that maybe what worked for them would work for me. But after many failed remedies, I, I began to get skeptical. And I, I wanted to know, well, why? Uh, I don't doubt that this worked for you, but, but why should I expect that it's going to work for me? I wanted to know the ground of assurance. 
I wanted to know why I should believe that, that this particular remedy, this particular stretch, or this particular uh, method was going to give me any sort of relief. That's really the sort of question that we're asking this morning. How do we know that we can be saved in Christ? And that may seem like a strange question to you, but you have to understand that throughout history, most people have known that God was there. Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 1. Most people know that, that God is there. The, uh, the, the, the new atheism that we see today is a fairly modern uh, development. This, this idea that, that we don't need God to, uh, to understand the world, that, that, the God gives no, that the world gives no evidence that God is, is there. These are modern delusions. People throughout most of history have known that God is there. And, and not only have they known that God is there, but Paul tells us again in, uh, earlier in Romans, he tells us that most people have known, uh, at least in a vague sense, <coughs> what God requires. We, we have a, a, a general sense uh, of, of what it is to, to be a, a good person of what it is to do right by our neighbor. Even in our world today that has such uh, twisted and perverted ideas about sexuality and so many other things, there is still a general sense of, of well, I'm supposed to treat my neighbor the way that I would want to be treated. They, they may have a, a, a completely upside-down idea of what it means to, to seek the good of your neighbor. They, they may do things that, uh, and call them good that actually lead to death, but they, they still have a sense that they are supposed to do good by their neighbor. This is what people have known throughout most of, of history. But not only have they had this vague sense of what is required, they have also had a keen awareness that they fall short even of their own vague understanding of right and wrong. People have known that they are not what they are supposed to be. People have, have had an awareness that they fall short. And so, therefore, throughout most of human history, people have wondered, what can I do to reconcile myself to God? What can I do to, to earn his favor and to earn a place in the world to come? But, of course, people have always just been guessing. They've been speculating. They, they, they have listened to others who seemed wise. They have listened to the suggestions of, of, of men and, and, and uh, sages and, and, and priests who, who tell them, well, if you do this or if you do that, then, then God will receive you in the age to come. And people have followed these uh, prescriptions uh, closely with, with devotion. But there's always that kernel of doubt that, that wondering, is, is, this really, is this really enough? Is this really the right way? Is this really the, uh, what will lead to life? And so most people who have, have wanted to know what they must do to be reconciled to God, and most people have struggled with doubts uh, regarding their chosen path. But that's exactly the question that Paul is addressing here in Romans chapter 8, this, this text that Sam read for us. What must I do to be reconciled to God? What must I do to escape the, the judgment that is justly due to me for my sins? And look what he says, beginning there in verse 31. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? That's, that's the, the point. But how do we know that God is for us? He tells us there in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is Paul's answer to the eternal question. How do we know uh, that we have been reconciled to God? How do we know that, that God has forgiven us? How do we know that God will receive us into his kingdom? Not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. How do we know that God will receive us? Because he did not spare his own son. He gave him up to be sacrificed for our sins and then raised him again to new life that in him we might be justified. Our assurance is grounded not in ourselves, not in our own performance, but our assurance is grounded in the Father's gift of the Son for our sake. Those who believe in Jesus, those who have repented of their sins and and bowed the knee to, to him as their rightful Lord and Savior, they can know with certainty that their sins have been forgiven and they have been reconciled to the Father and they will be received into the kingdom because Jesus has died for their sins. Because the Father did not spare the Son, but gave him up for us all. If the Father did not spare the Son, we can trust Him. We can know that He will with Him graciously give us all things. And think about what that means. What is this all things that Paul is is talking about? Well, as you've heard it said before, the, the all things includes all things. All good things are ours in Christ. In his letter to the Ephesians, he, he speaks of every spiritual blessing which is ours in uh, Christ. But But here, the the all things certainly includes our final salvation. Just scan back up the page to to the verses immediately preceding verse 31. Verses that are so familiar to us because there in verse uh, 28, uh, we are told that we know uh, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We know, we have assurance that that all things will work together for the good of those who who love him. And what is that good? (coughs) Verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who have been conformed to the image of Christ, those who have, who have been called out of darkness into light, what does he say? Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you have been called out of darkness into light, if he has opened your eyes to see Jesus for who he is, if he has given you that faith, then you have been justified. You have been declared righteous here and now before the Father. And if you have been justified, you will be glorified. Your glorification is certain, and it is certain because God would not put forth his Son to secure your salvation and then not give it to you. The Father has purchased your salvation. He has secured it with the the precious blood of his own Son. And because he has secured your salvation, you can have an absolute assurance 
that he will give it to you. This is what it means for us to have the assurance of God's love. We have been justified in Christ. We have been declared righteous because his righteousness has, has been counted as our own. And if you have been justified in Christ, then you have everything you need to be received into his heaven on that day. Sproul's son thought he would be received simply because he was dead. You have no such false hope, but you do have a certain hope. You do have what Peter calls a living hope. Because you have been justified in the Son, Jesus Christ. And if his righteousness is yours, then you will be received on that day. That, having been justified, you will be glorified. I wonder how, many, how often you have been in the position of having to, to buy a, a present for, or for someone you love. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a, a close friend. But you're in the position of, of needing to buy a present for someone. You, you want to, to honor them. But you're not quite sure what to get. And they won't tell you. Somehow they, they have it in their minds that, that you should know them well enough uh, to know what they want. In fact, knowing them well enough to know what they want is, is part of the gift that they are looking for. But when you are in that position, as I have been just a few times in my life, uh, wondering what I should buy my wife or, or uh, maybe what I should buy one of my, my children as a, as a gift, you're left with anything but assurance. <laughs> you're guessing. You're, you're trying to, to figure it out. But, but more often than not, I end up having no idea what to buy. It's a familiar feeling. But I want you to understand that it's not a feeling you should have with regard to your salvation. You don't need to guess what God wants. You don't need to guess what, what God needs from you in order for him to receive you into his kingdom. You see, what God has required, he has revealed. And what God has required, he has provided. And what God requires is simply faith in his son. If you will confess your sins, if you will own them and not deny them, not shift the blame for them, but, but bear the responsibility, own your sin, and turn to him in faith, trusting in his son, then you will be received. John tells us in his, first, in his gospel, if we believe in him, we will not perish, but have eternal life. And the ground of that assurance is nothing other than the blood of Jesus Christ himself. Just turn back a couple of chapters to, to Romans chapter 5. Listen to what Paul writes here in Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. He writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, listen to this, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved 
by his life. Do you hear that? That much more, much more, having been justified, much more we will be saved. Much more will be, be received into God's kingdom. Because we have been justified, there is no possibility that we will not escape the coming wrath of God. The trials that we experience in this life, the ones that that Paul describes there at the end of of Romans chapter 8, those those trials of tribulation and of distress and of persecution and of famine and of nakedness and of danger and and of sword. He said these trials can... They can cause us to doubt God's love, but they should not. They should not trump the absolute demonstration of God's love that is ours in the cross. Yes, God will allow us to pass through the waters. Yes, God will allow the fires to burn. But the promise of of Isaiah 43 stands for those who have believed and rested upon Jesus Christ. When we walk through those waters, we will not be overwhelmed. When we pass through the waters, we will not be burned. Why? Because he is with us. In all these things, Paul says, we are more than conquerors because of him. And there is nothing that can separate us from him and his love. And so let me just ask you briefly, do you know this assurance. Do you know with absolute confidence that your eternal destiny is secure? Not because of what you have done, but because of what God has done for you in and through his son. Do you have this absolute assurance in the power of Christ's blood? Do you know that God loves you and is for you because you are in Christ by faith alone. It's an assurance that we ought to have. It's it's an assurance that we ought to feel, but but so many of us struggle in this area. We we struggle to believe that Christ's sacrifice is enough for us. We see our sins and we believe they are too many. We we see our, our sins and we believe that they are too Grievous. Our, our guilt is too much. Our corruption is too deep. Or so we think. And if that is where you find yourself this morning, if you find yourself struggling with assurance this morning, then I want you to look again at, at verses 33 and, and 34. Look again at what Paul writes. He says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn. It's exactly what Sam was saying to the kids. If God has justified you, if God has declared you righteous, if God has said that that you have a right to all of the blessings of his covenant, including eternal life with him in the age to come, if God has said that, then who is to condemn you? It is not okay to deny your justification when God is the one who justifies you. Not only should you not let others condemn you, but you should not let your own heart condemn you. Paul himself said, my, my heart may condemn, but I take God at his word. We, we sometimes think it is humility or uh, it is low self-esteem that keeps us from believing uh, the gospel. But it is really a twisted form of pride. 
We are taking our own word over and against God's word. We are believing ourselves instead of him. God says, the one who calls on the name of the Lord will never be put to shame. God says, whoever believes in my son will not perish. God says that the person who has been justified by faith is at peace with him and will be received into his kingdom. Who do you think you are to make God a liar? It's the question we have to ask ourselves. And yet, we doubt God's veracity all the time. When we think our sins are too many, when we think our guilt is too great, when we think we are beyond the reach of his gospel, when we think we are beyond the reach of his grace, we are not being humble. We are calling God a liar. And so how do we overcome such foolishness? How, how do we learn to, to rest in the assurance of God's love that is rightly grounded in Christ's death and resurrection? We ask. We ask. We ask for God's grace. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe. Strengthen my faith. You believe only because he has given you faith. That is his gift to you. Ask him now to strengthen it. If you struggle with assurance, ask him to open the eyes of your heart to see more clearly the beauty of his son. If you struggle with assurance, ask him to, to grow your faith that you might be still and know that he is God and you can take him at his word. Set your face squarely against the foolishness of unbelief and take God at his word. Believe him when he says, the one who believes in me, the one who believes in my son, will not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, the answer to fighting against our assurances is not some new secret. It is simply returning to the gospel again and again and again. We live in a world that speaks against the gospel all the time. We live in a world that seeks to undermine faith all the time. So return to the gospel again and again and again. Hear it preached in church as you gather for worship. Hear it uh, in the word as you read it for yourself throughout uh, the week. Hear it in your conversations with, with fellow believers. Soak yourself in the gospel. Let it dwell in you richly that you may come to believe that he who has called upon the name of the Lord shall never be put to shame. Because he is the ground of your assurance. Your assurance is not in your performance. It's not in what you have done. It's, it's not in your religious duties. Your assurance is grounded in Christ. And because he is risen, seated at the right hand of the Father, you can know for certain. You can know for certain that one day you will be with him. One day you will inherit the coming kingdom of God. And because we can have such assurance in Christ, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. We, we thank you, Father, for the, for the reality of this gospel. We thank you for the clarity of this gospel. And we ask now, Father, that you would give us faith, strengthened faith, to take you at your word, and to rest in your promises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.